we just had Eric LaPointe on the podcast. And what was so interesting to me about Eric's story, aside from he's worked at some amazing organizations from Cirque du Soleil to Just for Laughs, and now he's running his own business. But the thing that stuck out to me was he said about his record label, if he would go back in time, or if he could go back in time, he wouldn't have been so strict with what the record label had to be. It was restricting their progress and creative abilities because they really had two specific sounds they were looking for. And back then, in you know, he started in 97. And soon after that, I believe uh, a Sam Roberts manager came to them. And even though Eric had Sam Roberts' five song EP on repeat in his home and he secretly loved it, he was like, ah, it doesn't fit within what we're trying to create at the record label. And I think there's two lessons there. One is that how many times do we think that we need to fit into something specific that we're trying to create? And that might miss, that might lead us to missing opportunities. And then there's a second lesson Eric shares at how he takes his experiences at that record label into what he does now at and now global, the company he launched. But I'll leave that one for the episode. Enjoy it. Hey, I'm Jordan Harding. I grew up watching my dad put on that suit and tie every morning and go out to successfully climb the corporate ladder. I thought I wanted to be him, but I was wrong. I needed to be me. To do that, I had conversations with incredible people to learn how they figured out this whole thing called life. I learned how they overcome adversity and pick themselves up when they've been knocked down. Now, I'm sharing those discussions with you so you can apply those same learnings to your life. Welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. I'm super excited to be joined by Eric LaPointe. He helps producers develop and distribute their content globally. Eric, you're the founder of Greater Vancouver's International TV, digital distribution and development consulting company, and now Global. You have over 15 years of content sales experience with major brands, including the likes of Just for Laughs and Cirque du Soleil. I think I read over 4,000 TV hours licensed in over 100 countries. Eric and I met during our time at Just for Laughs, and now you're in Vancouver. Eric, welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. I'm really happy to be here. And thanks for that amazing intro. <laughs> oh, well, you know, we're grateful, listeners, grateful to have you. And I can't wait to dig into some of your stories, both in Vancouver, transitioning from Montreal to Vancouver, and some of the interesting experiences you've had throughout your career. I want to kick it off. I know that you had, you co-founded a record label named Grenadine Records. Can you tell us how you got into that early in your career? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to actually, I do want to take one step back and say uh, your podcast is uh, highly inspiring. I've been listening to it, as you know, because every once in a while I'll sit, shoot you an email to say, hey, I listened to this episode. Um, so, yeah, again, grateful to be here. Um, hey, thanks, Eric. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. So I started a record label basically in university um, back in, God, it would have been officially in 97 and then or unofficially in 1997 and then officially in 1999 when we released a compilation album of bands from across Canada called Syrup and Gasoline, Volume 1. 
And and were you just like fascinated with music? Did you play an instrument? Like what even gave you the idea of like, I'm going to co-found a record label? You know, it, obviously it was the the music. Like I was a big music fan. It's funny, the things that we probably never t- spoke about when we were actually colleagues. Uh, but yeah, like when I was in high school, I had a drum kit in my basement. I love playing it. Um, I loved also listening to Canadian bands. And slowly but surely, as I got older in high school, like, well, uh, you know, as I got closer to grade 12 and back then OAC in Ontario, um, I started listening to like more underground bands that were a little bit more obscure. They were harder to find out about it. And there was something really intriguing about that. And this is going to totally age me, but like there's this one band out of Halifax that I absolutely love called Sloan. And they had started their own record label called Murder Records. And I remember going to one of their small shows in Brampton, Ontario, and they just had this really simple flyer with like black and white print with three albums on it. And that was a record label. And so as a high school kid, you look at that and go, I can do that. I could eventually have a record label. But first I went off to university, uh, went into campus radio, started booking bands and booking shows. Uh, met my business partner at in university at the radio station, and together we launched uh, the record label in pretty much in, in the last couple of years of university before moving to Montreal. And did I read you you released fifteen records and with like over ten artists or around ten artists? Yeah, over the course of like five years. And some of the bands we had on were Montreal band the Deers. We launched their first album. That was a really exciting thing to go through. Um, and we we also uh, had this French-Canadian band called Les Sequelles, who were kind of like this 60s garage rock uh, band that uh, for some reason or another, like they resonated with people in Ontario and even in college radio, college radio in the United States where they ended up charting. It, it was like, I think they were our number one um charting band uh was a french canadian band no way on college radio in the states yeah so eric i went back eric has a podcast as we'll speak about the global vid podcast i went back through youtube and i saw a titled one that was like regret Mm -hmm. and uh had the the lyrics of sam yeah and i had the lyrics of sam roberts band a, a band i've heard i've seen actually live about four or five times and you know, you you said things about break your own rules. You were talking about a regret. What what was the story around that? And what was your learning? You know, I was just thinking about this a few days ago, and I don't know why, but but if I could go back in time, it's how many times have I said that in my life? But if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have been so strict with what the record label had to do. And and it was restricting our progress and it was restricting our uh, creative capabilities because we had this one specific or two specific sounds that we really loved. And I think had we kind of broadened her, our horizon, we would have booked like different bands and potentially had more success. Sam Roberts is a perfect example because he came to us and uh, well, not him, but like his manager came to us and really wanted to be on our record label. I had a five song demo that eventually became his um, his first EP plus a bonus song that we never heard. 
And the truth is, is that CD, that demo CD was on rotation in my apartment for probably a good couple months. I, I, I was like, it was like my guilty pleasure. But in my mind at the time, and like, mind you, I was probably 24 years old, had these ideas of how the record label should be. But in my mind, I was like, oh, this is too commercial and won't fit our record label. But secretly, I was listening to it so much, and I just love the album. There was also another band uh, that I should have also booked, and my business partner was really, really pushing for it. And that was a band called uh, Bionic out of Montreal. Very heavy, kind of more like Queens of the Stone Age. And for the similar but different reasons, I was like, oh, no, a hard rock band doesn't really fit the aesthetics of the record label. And so those are two really good examples of things that we should have done to basically broaden uh, our reach and and what we were doing. But yeah, and then and ultimately make a little bit more money. And so do you look back on those? Obviously, we've all throughout our life maybe missed something or just we're hard on ourselves about a decision we made. But as you go forward and now you're an entrepreneur you know, again, Mm -hmm. and you've been an entrepreneur and done entrepreneurial things throughout your career, whether with organizations or on your own. Is there any lesson you took away from from those times at the record label you still keep in mind as you're running your business? Yes, but they might surprise you. Um, So again, keeping an open mind Mm -hmm. to what kind of clients you take on Mm -hmm. uh, is definitely part of what I do automatically, although I don't really think about it. The one thing I have thought about over and over again throughout my career is to make uh, the contracts that we write up between partners to be as mutually beneficial as possible. And so in those early days, we we had you know contracts uh, drawn up by lawyers, and sometimes the artists would sign on too quickly, and that created some conflict back in the day. But I can tell you right now, I have never had a legal conflict uh, in my career since, since that, those early days. And, and it's always about like making sure that you're creating these really um, if it's, if it's working with artists, you would call it artist friendly, but if you're working Mm -hmm. with partners, making sure that those contracts are win-win. And in fact, I think I remember being at Cirque du Soleil once and my boss said to me, Hey, you don't work for the, for the business partner. You work for us. But at the end of the day, I think people appreciated that approach. No, that's an amazing, amazing life lesson there. Eric, why don't you walk us through kind of your career in Montreal? Like to me, even as somebody who worked with you, it's just like, how did you get into content sales and doing these content deals across the globe? I was fortunate enough to be at a Just for Last festival with you and you're introducing me to... Comedy Central Italy or Comedy Central from another country. And I'm just like, how did you get into this space? Well, it all starts with that uh, story that I told you at the beginning with uh, having a drum set in my basement, right? Like just having a passion for entertainment in general. And I I did deviate a little bit for a, a year. I, I went into like a marketing job that wasn't actually a, a, a fit for me. And it was in like the supply chain industry, which, you know, not, not the sexiest industry in the world. Um, and 
But when I saw the posting at Cirque du Soleil, I, I jumped on it right away because they were looking for somebody to do the sales of their record label and oh. to do sales for uh, in the United States and in Canada. And this was back when, you know, retail sales were still active and people were still buying CDs. iTunes was just starting. So we were starting to track the sales there with, with the downloads. But, you know, this was like basically 2004, I started working at Cirque du Soleil. Honestly, I loved it there. It was a great place to work. They had a, a really great working culture, uh, probably similar to the things we hear about with Google and all these other, you know, tech companies in the States. Cirque du Soleil had just uh, an exceptional uh, culture. And so it was fun to work there. And there I, I did get to try different things because, you know, when you work for a corporation and, and, and I don't know if many people realize this, but Cirque du Soleil at the time had like 4,000 employees and or artists, uh, you know, working around the world. When you work for a corporation, the, the reality is you do a lot of different moves, sometimes not it's not your choice, right? It's like all of a sudden, after a year and a half of be being in the music department, I found myself in the sponsorship department while still handling the music files. And then it wasn't too long after that, maybe a couple of years later, I was in the branding department. And But there was a, a point where uh, one of my bosses looked at me and said, you're, you're a content guy, right? And just saw how much I enjoy do, doing uh, the music stuff way more in the sponsorship, way more in the branding. And there was an opening um, in the TV department at Cirque du Soleil to sell our shows that we would film or our documentaries that we would film. And so he offered me that opportunity. I didn't really think about it too much at the time, but looking back now, that was a, a real... Uh, turning point in my career because it introduced me to the TV business and it immediately introduced me to this international business. So you, when you're asking like, how did I get into the content business internationally? It all started with that ask of, do you want to replace somebody who's just left in the interim? And once I started dealing with people internationally, uh, distributors and broadcasters, I didn't want to let that go. It was just too much fun. And did you, so first of all, when you think about music in Cirque du Soleil, wh what type of music? Like, is it the music from their shows? Like, I'm not exactly, sure I yeah. even, oh, okay. So each show had its own soundtrack, but written by a composer. Normally it was highly influenced by world music and jazz, but also, you know, again, there's kind of like full circle here. Very similar to what I was talking about before with my own record label Search du Soleil was constantly pushing themselves out of their own boundaries. And so they would bring in Brazilian music experts and then, you know, rock music experts. And then all of a sudden the soundtracks were really going from one place to another, even classical movie soundtrack scores um, in, in a sense with a few of our shows. So completely taking, you know, different approaches. So it was a lot of fun to, uh, to work there. So you, you music sponsorship branding, and then, you know, he comes up to you and he says, you're a content guy. Mm -hmm. What, what, what do you say to yourself in your head? Like, are you like, fuck yeah, this guy gets it. Or are you like, Oh, I'm not sure, but all right, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> At that time. Yeah, it was, I'll give it a shot because 
uh, the TV industry seem way too glamorous for a guy who hung out in nightclubs with indie rock bands. So, and I, and my only experience on the TV side before getting that offer was being invited to, um, uh, to an, an award ceremony in Montreal and everybody was dressed up to the nines. And I was like, oh, it's nice to be here, but somehow I don't fit. And, and well, it turns out that was wrong. And so you, you had nine years at Cirque du Soleil, which a lot of, you know, the listeners probably thinking, oh my gosh, that's such an incredible company for what that company's created globally. And then you go to Just for Laughs, you know, the world's biggest comedy festival, um, Just for Laughs gags. There's there's content all over the globe. I remember it on over 100 airlines, I think, I think was what we used to say. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're dressed to the nines. You're like, this is cool. You're in that space. And then you end up on the international comedy space selling content there. Where, what was the, what was the move there? How'd you get there just for laughs? Well, first of all, I was always a fan of just for laughs. I still am. Uh, as a kid, I would look up to my older brothers and, uh, and when we would group together at like on new year's Eve, the CBC would be running the gala specials that just for laughs film probably, probably the summer prior. And and I just remember that experience of sitting down as a family, watching comedy, having some laughs. Um, I just fell in love right away with stand-up. And as I was working at Cirque du Soleil, I was constantly studying what Just for Laughs was doing mm. because I always felt like they were innovative. First of all, they were a much smaller company and they were TV focused. Like I think, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think about 50% of the business that comes from Just for Laughs is TV focus. And the other 50% is festival focus, whether that be sponsorship or ticket sales. So TV was so important. Whereas at Cirque du Soleil, TV was like an afterthought. In fact, sometimes we were at, at kind of um unwelcome part of the company because, you know, they would sell more tickets to one show in Vegas, for example, in one week than I would make that or that our department would make in one year. And so if you, you know, are proudly saying, hey, I've got this TV deal in Poland, well, you might have a problem because, you know, is is that show going to um, annoy the local show promoter who's trying to sell ticket sales and will have this perception that by airing, even though it's another show that might be airing on TV, there's this perception that it will take away ticket sales. That uh, that couldn't be further than the truth, but there was that two schools of thoughts at Cirque. Um, so, so with Just for Laughs, I was constantly looking at what they were doing from uh, online with their TV specials and whatnot. And I thought, or, or in airlines, as you mentioned, and I thought, this is what we need to do more and more. Um, so when the opportunity came up and I saw a posting there again, uh, it's kind of like I knew I would get that job. It wasn't easy. I had to go through did, like did you five know or people six there? interviews, by the way. <laughs> did you know people at the time there, Eric? Or were you just studying them as like an outsider? Yeah. You know, I, I knew I met with Bruce Hills actually over lunch because he connected with me on LinkedIn and, and, uh, and I think I responded and, and said, Hey, let's, 
you know, grab coffee or lunch sometime. And, and he said, yes. I mean, knowing who he is now, that totally makes sense. He's a total networker and he will meet with whoever he can, um, whenever he can. Uh, but at the time I was like, holy shit, you know, I'm going to meet with Bruce Hills, uh, from just for laughs. But, um, that was a different department. The international sales department was in a, in a different, uh, was under a different, um, vice presidency. And so I, I think it might've been, I don't know, a year later or something like that. I saw the posting, I applied, I got a call the next day. That's, and, and it's one of those things where you just look at a job posting and you know, okay, this is like, this was like written for me. And that rarely happens in life, but that time it did. And so I got a call the next day and, and, uh, the whole process went pretty fast. Although I did have like five or six interviews in total, but the whole thing took basically a month from start to finish. That's amazing. I think it's so cool how you were looking at what they were doing from an outside and yeah, Bruce is a networker. Shout out to Bruce who was hired me at just for laughs as well. And is known for launching some of the biggest careers, whether he was involved in the beginning with Dave Chappelle or helping Kevin Hart build out his team. He's quite an incredible individual and, and force in the comedy space. Eric, you, you, so at, with just for laughs, I think you were a senior director there. Mm-hmm. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were there for three years and then you decided you're going to move to Vancouver and what was that like to make that decision to leave behind two big entertainment companies you worked for in Quebec and to move somewhere totally brand new to you? Are you trying to depress me, Jordan? <laughs> no, let's bring it up. No, Here I'm you making are, five a joke. Years I'm making later. a joke. Um, <laughs> that's why you weren't a comedian at Just for Last, right? That's why I wasn't a comedian? <laughs> you were, not weren't. I don't know. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was, it wasn't easy. That was turned out to be my dream job. I loved it. I, I traveled around the world. I really got to know the broadcasters directly, as opposed to at Circa, I was still working um, with, through distributors. So I, I had some contact with, with broadcasters, but not to the extent that I did. And, and then I got to work with comedians and, and, you know, the just for laughs gags franchise. I mean, that was just too much fun, but it was a family decision, right? Like, um, so my, my wife, her father was ill and we kind of decided, you know what, we're going to go and support the family and, and move to Vancouver. But yeah, it wasn't an easy decision. I certainly thought about it long and hard, but it it got to the point where like we couldn't stall it anymore and we had to make a pretty uh drastic decision quite quickly. And you know, I remember like the I literally knew like three people. So mm-hmm. my network was pretty much nil. And through those three people, uh I gave them each a phone call and asked them to like introduce me to another person. And this is way before Zoom. So this would have been on the phone. And I was having these conversations with, and I remember there was one guy and I'm not going to name his name, but he, he completely ruined the experience for me because he was just like, oh, you work in distribution. Yeah. Vancouver's more of a production town. There aren't really any jobs for you here. (laughs) And, and I think he was trying to be nice in, in a sense by just telling me the way it was, but and and taking the call in the first place uh, because of that intro through somebody else. But I got off the phone. I'm like, we can't move to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. 
But then I called somebody else that I knew in the business for a while as well. And his name is Brad Danks from OutTV, uh, which is pretty much Canada's only privately owned TV channel uh, in, in Vancouver. And he was way more positive. He was like, you know, you bring a whole different set of skills to this city. You will be welcome. It's not going to be easy, but knock on every single door you can. And eventually somebody will say, oh, you're here. And uh, wow. and be happy that you're there. And that's kind of what happened, right? So I, I had to like just say, okay, I don't know where where my next job is, what am I going to do? Like, I really didn't know. The one good thing I did have is I did have um, a contract, a short-term contract offered to me by Just for Laughs that would mm -hmm. give me a, my footing in the city. And I certainly hoped to renew that in all transparency. Um, but there was another situation that happened at Just for Laughs that <laughs> 2017 that made that impossible. But we don't need to talk about that today. People can go read about that in the news if they'd yes. like. But Eric, you know, you, you said, <laughs> are we trying to bring it to a depressive mood? I mean, we all know we're not. And it, it, it's it's not a straight line. And when I thought about your career and you reached out to me, I was like, wow. Like Eric worked at Cirque du Soleil just for laughs. Now he's making the family decision to move to Vancouver. You don't have many contacts there and you're calling people. And, you know, here you are five, five years later doing your thing. Did you know at that point, you, you said you were hoping for that contract to renew. When did you kind of decide I'm going on my own and I'm going to create and now global? Or did you always know you were going to create your own thing? I didn't. I was really hoping that I would find uh, a distribution job. Like, so speaking of your, the title of your podcast, my career in some ways has been a straight line. Um, but yet it hasn't like, remember I said I had that marketing gig in the middle that was kind of a deviation. But then when you look at Cirque du Soleil, you look at my resume, you go look at record label Cirque du Soleil just for laughs. And even the consulting company now, it looks like a straight line, but it's, it's totally not. And moving to Vancouver was a, was a total step back, you know, um, in my career. Like it, uh, in fact, it was career suicide in many ways. So no, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. What I did know is that I started getting approached by some other people uh, and they were hoping to hire me. And then I started looking around Vancouver and I was networking like mad. The one, the first thing I did when I moved to Vancouver was basically like have probably five meetings a week with people, mm -hmm. either coffees or lunches and just network like mad. And that led me to my first consulting client, but I didn't know if they weren't ready to sign on the moment my contract with Just for Laughs was ending. I, I guess as a, as a kind of a backup, I started designing my logo and thinking like, what, what's the name of this company going to be? What's the mission of this company going to be? And preparing myself for that. And here's another learning from the, you know, the record label days with Grenadine is that I realized, um, I had to have a day job, you know, like, especially when you have kids and, and everything, I had to have something that would sustain me uh, and the company. So basically I had an offer from another company and I just said, you know, I'd rather you become a client mm. and, and we'll work. I think I was working with them like 15 to 20 hours a week 
uh, more or less. Did they, did they want to hire you full-time Eric? And you were like, Hey, let's, they, let's work out a client relationship. Yeah, they did. And, and I just wasn't there anymore. And, and it was a Quebec company and I just felt like, uh, it, it'll be better if I use this as a stepping stone. But again, you know, I, when I run, ran the record label, as soon as we, you know, got our funding, uh, with grants and whatnot, we went right into it full time. And looking back, I could have stretched that way longer had I had like a part-time job to help sustain and pay the rent and whatnot. In this case, I had no choice. You know, I have to put food on the table. Um, I have to, you know, provide for my family. So it, it wasn't an option. So basically with, with that in mind, I started being, I already was starting to be a consultant at that time, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to be one. I wanted to have my own distribution company. And that's basically what I launched um, after my contract ended with Just for Laughs. Was the distribution company? Yeah. Like the, your own. So yeah. And Now Global became a distribution company and a consulting company at the same time. And the name, is it, I think it's very creative, but is it about how you're taking content global? Is it? Is it? Is that? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. In fact, it's um, highly influenced by where I live now, because what I noticed was a community of TV and film producers that were really good at producing and either did stuff for like production service work for Americans, because a lot of you know companies from the States will come up here to film. And, and then I was like, okay, but here I am, like that first guy said, here I am, I'm, I'm here to help with distribution. You guys do great content, but now what? And that's how, I think it was my wife that came up with it. Cause I was kind of like, I think that's what probably I said. I said, now what? And then my wife looked at me and said, you could call your company. And now, and that was it, you know? And, and finally I found out there was another company called, and now media in New Jersey, that were kind of like a film crew. And I'm like, ah, I can't call myself and now because it's taken. But then again, if you add a third word, it's up for grabs. So I called it and now global. I, I think it's brilliant. I, I love the name. It's very creative and it fits really well what you do. And I think it's also funny how that gentleman who spoke with you and whether he was trying to bring you down or bring you up or just being straight honest, straight on. He's I like, think. hey, it's a production town. But the opportunity there you seized was, hey, I can bring my skill set and mm-hmm. help help people because just because the town's one thing or the city's one thing doesn't mean that other part of it can't exist or you can't start that, right? So um, what about during the, so Eric, and then you're there and you, you know, the pandemic hits and I know you said to me the pandemic was a, was a tough time starting out mm. in the business. What, what was that like and how did you sustain yourself? Well, thankfully, um, one of my contracts with the Vancouver Animation Studio called Global Mechanic, um, that started in September of 2019. So we we were off and I was super excited about that job because now all of a sudden I found myself working in animation. Um, and then the pandemic, and then at the, again, at the same time, I thought, okay, and I can still, I'm the other 50% of my time, I can still keep growing the uh, the distribution company. And I remember like in 2019, um, leaving MIPCOM in France, which is like this big major TV uh, broadcasting conference or market where we all sell content. I remember walking away from that event going, wow, this is great. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm 
breaking even, you know, 2018 mm-hmm. was kind of like my launch. 2019 was like solidifying my business. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, sky's the limit in 2020. Um, and, and I came back from another event called kid screen, uh, that's held in Miami in 2020. And already we were hearing about what was happening in the news. And I was like, okay, but you know, this will go away. Like SARS did in Toronto to a certain extent, you know, like SARS just disappeared in the two thousands. Um, but no, this, this one stuck and, and put the whole world at a stop. I don't think I need to really explain that part to the listeners. Everybody lived through it and struggled through it in different ways. But on the TV business, people are telling me like, well, our budgets aren't hold right now. Like there's no advertising coming in. We have to put a hold on our acquisitions until the fall. And then again, it didn't end in the fall, didn't end in 2021. And then I found myself in this position in 2020, at the end of 2021, where I had to act like my own boss. I have nobody to report to in some ways, except for my clients, but I had to take a hard look at what was happening. Okay. I spent two years on Zoom calls trying to sell TV content to people who had no budgets. And do I want to continue that? That was like the rat race that I didn't want to be in whatsoever you know, like, um, endless zoom calls with no, with very little traction. That wasn't super interesting. Uh, I also got some low ball offers that I had never seen in my life. And I was like, I- I'm not, I'm not doing these deals. You know, my clients won't accept them and, and they're not worth it. And so I basically looked at, you know, I guess my, my numbers in a sense, or just, you know, um, my own business. And I realized, well, uh, the distribution side of things isn't going well. And we don't know if we've got another year or two of this thing uh, into 2022. Thankfully, things opened up to a certain extent, but we saw things close down really quickly as well. Because so, Eric, if I could stop you for a sec. So yeah, you're getting sure. content from people that produce content yep. and then you're going to distribute it and sell the deals globally. Is that basically what distribution looks like? In Sorry. Yes, world? that's exactly yeah. what distribution looks like. Yeah. No, no, I just wanted to make really sure great myself context. and the listener, you know, understand yeah. it. And also the question that came to my mind is if these are TV shows and content, why are you getting low ball offers or no offers during the pandemic? Like how does a pandemic affect? Cause people are still watching content. People are still watching, but if you look at, um, I don't know if you're, well, we were all watching a lot of content, uh, during that time, but you might also remember, like, if you were watching CNN, for example, I certainly was watching a lot of CNN at the time because, well, there was a uh, presidential election at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Same ads would keep popping up. And you would also notice, like, if you looked at the CBC in Canada or any other network, uh, they would have their own internal advertising. So they'd be advertising like their news network. They would be advertising another show. They were filling that space or, or, or giving their advertiser that advertisers that were staying on, they were giving them more time, you know, to fill that, that those empty spots. And so I don't have the exact stats, but I wouldn't be surprised to hear that some of these broadcasters and, uh, not the streamers, but the broadcasters, they easily lost probably 
of their uh, advertising income. Mm. And now that might differ from country to country and broadcaster to broadcaster, but uh, so these, this is not hard science, but at the end of the day, um, you know, they had less money to work with and, and people were losing their jobs. Uh, The last deals I was trying to work on, I had three different buyers in the Philippines interested in content. Uh, The first one, uh, the person lost, the vice president lost their job. So I'm like, okay, well, now I'm starting from scratch. That's going to probably not going to work out. Next one said, "Ah, let's put things on hold. And then it was the third one that came with like these really low ball offers where it just didn't make any sense to, to take it. So I, you know, and also I think maybe people were preying on that reality. Like they knew that everybody was bleeding, they were bleeding, and then they're trying to get, you know, these miraculous deals that's really in their favor. And I just wasn't like, I didn't want to start devaluing content like that you know, uh, and, or to be part of that. I did have, uh, another distributor come to me and said, you know, we've set up our whole business to solve that problem. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, we have a ton of content to, um, to sell at dirt cheap prices. And if you want to help us, um, package these deals. But again, that didn't excite me like to start go into other countries and say, I have the, this content that's like dirt cheap. And so if you want to pay dirt cheap, I got content for you that that wasn't what I signed up for. I signed up to help producers get their content out there. So anyways, I'm, I made that decision. I looked at my numbers and I I saw, okay, I'm making money in consulting and thank God I had that part-time consulting uh, set up because I survived through the pandemic. I didn't need to have any, um, you know, government support of any kind. And the second thing that I did was I was running a co-working office in my hometown and I decided to close that down too, because for the same reason, people weren't needing a space to go to. And in fact, people were fearing going to a, a place of work, right? And everybody adjusted to working from home. So by cutting those two things out and being my own boss and saying, okay, do more consulting, I basically made a decision to uh, to 100% focus on consulting from, from that moment on. And it took time, but eventually I picked up some clients uh, come like March, April, and then May, June, and and that, and then it took me a re, I, I would say it took me a full twelve months to really get going um, at full speed for sure. But in terms of the consulting I work that I do, uh, yeah, it's helping producers who might not have the bandwidth or the money uh, to to hire somebody full time, but they still need guidance. Like, how do we sell our content internationally? What rates should we propose what um or how should we develop our content and uh, which is what i'm doing a lot with global mechanic it's like we are building relationships with the streamers and the broadcasters and we are positioning ourselves to you know sell our ideas so it could be either you know selling developing those ideas and trying to sell those ideas that haven't been filmed yet or taking existing content and trying to push it further uh, to, to find a, a much larger audience instead of just, you know, again, going back to the Vancouver example is that they were so focused on their business here in Vancouver and pro- producing 
they weren't seeing the full potential of the of the global opportunity. Uh-huh. And obviously, that, that's not a, across the board because there's a lot of great companies that know what they're doing, but it wasn't to the same extent as what I saw in Toronto, Montreal. Yeah, and I think the other thing that would have been so difficult for you was, you know, when you were at Just for Laughs, I saw you had people from, you know, different countries coming in. You were meeting with them in person. You were going to these these conferences and meeting mm-hmm. people face to face, and some of that, some of that would have gone away. So that would have been also a struggle, and you had to bounce back from that as well. Oh God, I hated that part. That that's my favorite part, Jordan, is to be able to go somewhere, get on a plane go somewhere, meet people face-to-face, book as many meetings as you can. I'm really good at booking meetings and engaging with people. And all of a sudden we're on Zoom. Like it's just not the same thing. It's not fun. And I didn't mind it in the beginning. I I kind of embraced it. Yes. But after two years, I was like, okay, enough of this. Let's get back to real life. Let's, you know, let's start going out there again. Mind you, I was still paranoid and wearing a mask all the time, but Anyways, nonetheless, I wanted to get out there again. There's nothing better. There isn't anything better. And, you know, so Eric, with your business and now global, like any list, anyone listening to this, what, what do you kind of see over the next year? Like what are the clients you want to work with and how do you want to expand yourself and your business? Oh boy. Um, that's a, that's a good question because at this stage, I am, I'm full. So I've got a full slate of clients and the other learning, the first learning was how to become a consultant in the first place. Second learning was how to embrace the word consultant, because I, I always had a negative uh, view of that word for one reason or another. And now that I'm like booked up, well, how to sustain that because contracts do come and go. Some of them are short-term, some of them are, are long-term. And how, I think the trap I'm in now, and this is a good trap to be in, Jordan, so I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but I'm totally maxed out on time. And and perhaps I'm undercharging. Yeah, And so yeah. it's like, I there's no way I can continue the level of work that I'm doing now for the next 12 months. So I think for me in the next 12 months, it's really going to be looking at which contracts I take on. Is there long-term potential with these, each of these new contracts and, and start to, you know, push my rates up um, and, and find a, maybe a better balance may perhaps have fewer clients and and that way I can also focus more on the ones I do have instead of like just burning the midnight oil, which is, you know, what my family might tell you I've been doing lately. <laughs> what about, uh, have you thought about like, could you bring on some resources or is it as a consultant, Eric, you got to be the one like that's making the calls or making the decisions? Like, is there an opportunity to extend, expand with people? I think there is. <clears throat> I just haven't figured that out yet to be perfectly frank, and that will be part of the adventure. So um, there's a couple other consultants I've been talking to about collaboration. So that's one side of things. Uh, recently, there was somebody that uh, approached me and and I said, you know, I'm fully maxed out, but if you want, I can uh, subcontract that. 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's been a, a, a couple now and, and one of them, um, one of them was like, oh, okay, maybe, but then, you know, it didn't quite pan out, but those are the moments where like, and in fact, I was meeting with my accountant today and he, and he said the same thing. You, you need to learn how to charge more now, <laughs> but because we're getting new interest, then, then, and you're in a position, once you're full, you're in a position to start offering, uh, to, to start asking for a little bit more money as opposed to when you're starting off from scratch and you don't have one consultant client yet, you're not in that same position. So you have to like, you know, um, go climb back up that ladder all over again. Right. Which is not a straight line. <laughs> and so uh, speaking of that, would, would you ever, do you enjoy working on your own now? And could you ever see yourself going back to an organization like you did in the past? I absolutely enjoy doing what I do. It is a lot of fun. Um, I've didn't think I would even like working from home, but it's worked out. Um, so that part's fine, but I am a pretty social being. So, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, could you bring on other consultants? Could you find help? Uh, those are things that would probably make life more fun. And in terms of like, could I see myself uh, having a job again? Sure. But this is the part where I'm like, I don't know anymore. It's <laughs> like, I, I I'm having too much fun. And, and despite the additional hours of work, there is a freedom to it. Like if I want to go to the gym in the morning and I have nothing and like no meetings in my schedule, I just do it. If I, uh, you know, want to go pick up my kids from school, uh, then I can just do it. You know, like there's, there's nothing stopping me unless I have, you know, things already on the schedule. So, you know, or just, deciding ah, I'm going to go work from the coffee shop this afternoon, you know, like simple things like that. Um, or take a day off if you want to. The reality is that those things actually don't happen that often. Um, except for the gym, I'm finally doing that regularly. Um, but the other stuff does, you know, happen a little less because you are busy, Yeah. but there is this freedom that, you know, you just can't get when you're glued to a desk at a specific location. But I do miss, uh, well, dealing with people like you, Jordan, like when you would come and uh, to Montreal and we would get the dialogue and then there's the whole floor of, of staff. And even though we were from different departments, you know, there was dialogue and there was, uh, you know, uh, there's also like cross department conversations of like, Oh, maybe yeah. we could do this and maybe we could do that. And, you know, technology is still there. We're using things like zoom. We're using things like Slack and that's great, but it hasn't completely replaced um, the ability to work with people. So anyways, uh, I, I did even think about it in the fall because in the fall, I was thinking to myself like, well, what's next? Cause I, I didn't have a full slate yet. You know, it was just mm -hmm. like at, you know, 50 to 75%, depending on the month and things came to me in the fall and, um, and then it got really busy. And so now I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to do that at all, but I, I guess it's still there in the back of my mind as a backup plan. I don't know if that's a good thing to have a backup plan or not, but I'll tell you this, uh, having a backup plan in any situation in life 
is, is a stress reliever. So knowing that I could apply for jobs, even though I really didn't, took some of the pressure off of what, of, you know, what I was trying to do with my consulting company, but yep. ultimately I just kept focusing on getting more clients instead. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, my friend, John, who's been on the podcast twice, he was in the military in Canada and they always said, plan that the plan will go to plan. <laughs> so okay. it's kind of like, you know, plan about if it doesn't go to plan, what are you going to do next? Right. Cause sometimes it does not go that way, but I am glad it's going for going well for you, Eric. I know you got new episodes coming out on the global vid podcast. Um, what, what should people expect? This will probably come out two weeks from now. What, what's, what's on the docket? Sure. Well, first of all, the global vid podcast is really meant for anybody who works in the the TV and streaming business. So I'll say that right off the bat. Uh, but at the same time, one thing that will appeal to some of your listeners, especially if they work in the entertainment space, is that I also dive into their career backgrounds. And, and I what I like to think about with this podcast is that I'm teaching the younger generation about the TV and streaming industry. And so part of the conversation is like, well, how did you get into this business? How did you, you know, what did you do that was unique that, that allowed you to get, uh, that allowed you to get into TV. And so what can people expect? Well, uh, so I've just launched season three earlier this, uh, well in February, and it started with new conversations and I'm trying to branch out a little bit so that it's not just like when I first started the podcast, it was like 100% focus on international TV distribution, which is so niche season two. I started branching out a little bit, uh, with newer conversations. I interviewed an associate director from New York city that was tell telling me about how she started her career from scratch. I talked to another coach, uh, and an actress about how not to get nervous when pitching or in her case, you know, when she was doing casting calls, you know, like she, uh, or what, what do you call that? Yeah. Casting when she was casting, like mm -hmm, she, yeah. she would get, you know, originally she would get all nervous, but she figured out some tools that could, you know, uh, bring that down. So I started expanding on that. And now with this season, I'm like, I want to go. Yeah, it's about the TV and streaming industry, but I'm going to start to deviate a little bit. So the first episode, actually, we talked about data, you know, oh, um, and uh, this this lady from Poland, she um, her name is Pola Hempovich. Uh, she now works for this company called Plum Research that can actually quite accurately track what Netflix is doing, even though they keep all that information super secret. Right. That gives producers leverage. If they know what's actually happening, it helps them negotiate their deals better uh, as opposed to like having zero information at all. Like, oh, we want to do season two. And Netflix says, well, no, it didn't do well because actually it did really well. <laughs> and we help maintain your subscribers by this much. So you should strongly consider uh, coming back. Then um, another thing that's happened is I'm want to dive into a little bit more into the journey stories. And so there was one individual, which I highly recommend you connecting with as well. So one, this one individual, he, he was a uh, writer and wanted to get into the film industry, 
had a very normal uh, middle class upbringing, but found himself in a situation. I'll let people kind of listen to it to, to hear the full story, but find himself in a situation where he started living a life of crime. And you see, it's like those small decisions that we make in life can go in a positive direction or a negative direction. And that's what I took from that is that he made some slightly bad decisions that's that snowballed into a life of crime. But then he completely turned his life around. And uh, by first like writing letters to his sister from jail, then uh, she turned that into a blog. He didn't even know what that was yet. This was like the early 2000s. And later he wrote a book. He got his life story option by Warner Brothers. He got an article in the GQ magazine about his life and just completely changed. Again, he made some small decisions that were more positive and, and went in a different but more positive direction. And so that's a interesting one because and i really struggled whether or not to take on his story or not because it's like oh wow this is a complete deviation and there wasn't a happy ending at the end i'm like oh now his movie is going to be on t- you know uh in theaters in, in you know april or whatever you know this like actually didn't pan out and i think those stories are really important to to listen to as well and and it brings i, I don't know it widens the audience again and it goes back to that what I was saying about the record label at the very beginning. Just like, don't stay stuck in like, oh, it has to be this, but just slowly but surely like expand, you know, the types of guests you have and where the podcast can go. And I imagine you're probably doing the same thing, Jordan. Yeah, because you really don't know where any conversation or any opportunity can lead to. And, you know, those are some unbelievable stories you're bringing. You're just bringing you know, putting in front of people. I saw you promote the one about the plum, plum data research company. And I'm going to go back and check that out. Uh, Cause it's so interesting, the service they can provide yeah. to people creating the content, then they can go back to the streaming companies and have that, you know, that data insight backing. Eric, I'll put the, for the listener, I'll put the, your podcast link in the description um, and your website in there. Uh, but I did want to finish off with three, I call them zigzag questions because it's not a straight line. I'll think I'll mix one up here for you just based on your yep. your story. Um, you know, w- what drives you as a consultant to really get out of bed in the morning? What keeps you excited about doing what you do? Um, it's those, it's the human connections that we make that drives me constantly, um, which is why, you know, traveling and getting out of your house, you know, let alone the country is really important. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be the number one driver is the connections I make with people. That's such a great answer. Is there something you'd tell yourself as you were leaving Montreal, knowing like five, six years down the line, like something you'd tell yourself or, or normally I say, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Mm. That's a really cool question too. I'm, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to tell my Montreal self, gosh, that, that it's all going to work out. If you put the work into it, it's going to work out. And so I, again, I knew like three people max when I moved to Vancouver 
and it's no surprise. I had just mentioned like the number one thing is, is human connection. So I actually looked at moving to Vancouver as an opportunity, as opposed to like, oh, this is a negative thing happening to me. I have to move for family reasons. I looked at it as an opportunity to rebuild or build an entirely new network. And so five years later, it's kind of like I have these great connections in Montreal. I, I also grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. So I have pretty decent connections in Toronto as well. And now in Vancouver. So it's like, I, I do definitely feel privileged uh, to have these connections across the country. And at some point, that's going to make sense for different reasons, um, at, you know, in the future. Absolutely. And and I see that you, you know, you build community in so many different ways. I know you're involved in, I think it's a comedy and busker kind of festival event that happens yep. in, in your area there. And you're also part of a Francophone group, I believe I saw. Is yep. that true? Yeah. So you're, yeah, yeah. you're so good at keeping those human connections alive. The last one is uh, based on what you do. Any prediction over the next year with what's going on with Netflix and this password or anything you want to say about the streaming world? What, what password are you referring to? <laughs> well, Netflix came out with this new thing of you need to have, you need to set your home base, right? Oh, yeah. And, and there's been this big uproar about it. And, you know, people are are just, you know, I don't know. Do you have any comment about streaming in general or where you see something going in the next year? Sure. I don't get asked these questions a lot, so it's kind of fun to answer, but uh, there's going to be a lot of changes and they're already happening right now. So first of all, for the password, that's Netflix trying to protect itself and trying to protect its revenues um, because to grow, to continue to grow at the rate they have is going to be very hard to do. And there's a lot of belt tightening right now uh, because there's you know a looming uh, recession that uh, that experts are, you know, financial experts are talking about. Uh, in the States, there's also a potential writer strike, yes, which, yes. Uh, you know, is going to um, affect uh, how shows get made in the States. And what we're seeing already, like, so the company I work with, Global Mechanic, uh, an animation studio out of Vancouver, they had this amazing um, production with Believe Entertainment out of New York City, a, a kind of like a, uh, a preschool uh, kids show called Jam Van. Uh, they had the, uh, the musical director of uh, Sesame Street working on it, and they had all these stars on it. And YouTube Originals launched it on January 19th. January 19th, we had a full page article in the New York Times. And the very next day, the YouTube original teams um, lost their job. Oh. So it happened overnight. And then I was in LA just like two, three weeks ago. And same thing. I won't name this this broadcaster because it's not in the news like it was with YouTube. But uh, same thing. They had just, just had some layoffs. Uh, Netflix had some layoffs last year. Um and, you know, right now there's uh, Warner and, and Discovery have recently merged. So there's going to be changed, more changes there. There already have been some very quietly, but there's more changes coming up. So, yeah, that it's going to be a challenging year. But as a consultant, I don't actually look at that as being negative because it might actually mean that I will be more in demand mm -hmm. uh, to help na people navigate through that. And because one of the things I constantly do is keep track of who goes where 
and who's still at which company and who's now in charge. And that is going to become very, very important. And it's not going to uh, kill the business like the pandemic did. It's just going to uh, make everybody focus on uh, doing things better. And that's already what the studio that I'm working with, we're already doing. We're focusing on our best IP, our best Mm -hmm. ideas and fine tuning them. Uh, But maybe gone are the days where we have the the biggest slate in the world, because again, we have to be super focused in this new world where there's going to be a little bit less money going around, but at the same time, people are going to want value for, you know, for the money that they can invest. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and thanks for commenting on that. And, you know, what I also appreciate, Eric, that, you know, during those tough days of the pandemic, when people were lowball offering you, you had the value and the principles to say, you know what, this isn't the route I want to go. And, uh, you know, I respect that, that about you. So Eric, thanks so much for taking the time and being on the podcast and sharing about your career and and your business and uh, all the best with and now global and your podcast thanks and uh same to you jordan i i wish you nothing but success with uh it's not a straight line as i said in the very beginning i think it's a great podcast i've i think i've referred you uh, at least one person maybe a few other ideas but i think it's what people need to hear especially during the pandemic right it's what people absolutely need to hear it's their kind of like my story right now. It's like, ah, it's a big change. So how do we, we need help. We need guidance and that's what you're doing. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Thanks, Eric. We'll talk to you soon. What did you take away from our chat today? I'd love to know. Let me know on Instagram at it's not a straight line or connect with me on LinkedIn. If this episode was helpful, would you mind leaving me a review on whatever podcast app you use? I'd really appreciate it. You can always go back to previous episodes to hear more insightful conversations to help you build your own unique life. Thanks for listening to It's Not a Straight Line. Until next time.